All right, let's do this. Uh, week three of our series, Love Is. Now, in week one, we, we talked about the unrelenting love of God. A love that delights in you, a love that pays attention to you, a, a, a love that is unconditional, and a love that constantly pursues you all the days of your life. Hey, remember that truth we talked about, the, the, the 4 9 principle? We love because he first loved us, right? Remember we did that little repeat back thing? Like if your line is, I'll say, we love, and your line would be because he first loved us, right? There's God who like created everything, okay? You guys ready? Ready to do this? Like, we're live on Facebook Live right now. There's millions of people right now tuned in all across the globe, even in Mars, the universe, the space station, I mean, everywhere, right? Yeah. So we want to do this right. We love. Because he first loved us. <laughs> we love. Because he first loved us. There you go, man. Bring it, Mr. Ripa. All right. And, and last week, we unpacked the truth that the love is patient. And then we discussed some practical ways that we can develop our macrophemia, our patience. Macro meaning slow, fumia meaning burning, slow burning. Did anybody have their macro fumia tested this week? Raise your hand. Has your patient tested? My kids came from school on Monday and we talked about, hey, how was your macro fumia tested? It, it was tested. How'd you do? You get a, you need to get a passing grade, like maybe 70%? You know, and no one's ever going to get it perfect. And, and before we jump into our next love is statement, I, I just want us to lean into the following scriptures that, that talk about the, the power and the importance of God's kind of love. Jesus said, the night of his arrest, I give you a new command, love one another. Uh, just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Paul writes, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Galatians says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Peter wrote, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. And John writes in 1 John, dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into this world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, think about the cross. What it must have been like for the Father and the Son. We surely ought to love each other. No one's ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought into full expression in us. Understand, Maple Grove love is a big, huge, massive, enormous Great, gigantic, immense, significant, serious, essential, critical, crucial, imperative, indispensable, important deal. Amen? Amen. 
I mean, love is the only thing that counts. L love covers a multitude of sins. Love fulfills the entire law. Love is from God. Love makes us a child of God. Love is how we get to know God. Love is how God expresses his love to the world through us. And love is the only way the world will know that we are his disciples. And what if, what if, what if you and what if I, what if the people sitting in this room, what if the people who meet to worship our Savior King at 3210 Prophet Road, what if instead of merely skimming the surface and skirting the edges, well, what if instead of staying in the shallow end with our water wings on, splashing around, what if we choose at this moment to, and during this series, to dive headfirst and plunge the depths of God's love like never before? Instead of toying with, what if we jump in? Heavenly Father, we love you. We need you. And God, we need your kind of love in our homes, in our marriages, where we work, where we go to school, in the public square. Lord, throughout our entire world, we need your kind of love. And God, we talk about it, we sing about it. And nothing I'm saying now is brand new, God, but may we dive in and see what could really happen. If we pursue your love and pursue living it out like never before, Holy Spirit, please help us because love is the only thing that counts, because love covers a multitude of sins, because love is the only way that people will know that we're your disciples. Amen. Now, now here's how we're going to attack our conversation today. We're going to use a story, an event found in 2 Samuel chapter 9, a story of David's life. And we're going to look at that story, and from that story, we're going to draw some principles, some things that we can apply to our lives that will enable us to uh, more effectively live out the truth that love is kind. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 9 opens up. David has been uh, king of Israel for many years. He has won countless victories. He's firmly established himself as king. He's joined a time of relative peace and, and quiet throughout the kingdom. And, and that's basically where we are when the chapter opens up. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. One day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Got a little backstory. Saul was the, the first king of Israel. He started off really good, ended up not so good at all. Uh, Jonathan was his son. Jonathan was heir to the throne. And Jonathan and David became best friends shortly after David had killed the giant Goliath. Now you would think that these two guys would have been bitter enemies, right? I mean, when someone takes something that you were expecting and then you thought was already yours, like a kingdom and a crown and a throne, it usually creates a lot of conflict. But again, these guys became best friends. But they shouldn't have been, right? You would expect these guys to have been battling their entire lifetimes. Kind of like Democrats and Republicans, right? The Yankees and the Red Sox, UVA and Virginia Tech. 
Yeah, that, that should have been their story, but it wasn't. And, and again, Jonathan is, is King Saul's son, and, and in many minds, including his own, since he was a little boy, he should have been the one to take the throne, but instead David is anointed as the next king, and Jonathan was not only okay with that, but he became David's best friend and his most ardent supporter. However, his dad had different feelings towards David. Uh, Saul hated David. Saul was jealous of David. Uh, he tried to kill David. I mean, many times while David's just playing worship songs for him, he chucked spears at him, right? And if anyone throws spears at you, I'm just letting you know they're not your friend, right? That's a clue. That person is not my friend. And, and, and Jonathan knew, hey, I, I know my dad doesn't like David. I, I know my dad is jealous of David. But he had a hard time believing that his dad would actually want to kill David. But eventually, he finds out that, you know what? I can't believe it, but he really does. My dad wants to kill my best friend. My dad wants to kill the one that God has chosen to be the king. And so Jonathan and David, they decide that it's best for the time being for, for themselves to, to separate Jonathan would hang out with his dad, I think, to support his dad and, you know, just to make sure, get some intel if, if his dad was going to do something to get David. But before they separate, in second and first Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan, uh, knowing that David would be king, uh, makes this appeal to David in first Samuel 20, verses 13 through 15. Again, two best friends. One who thought he was going to be king, but his friend became king. He said, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. You see, in those days it was customary when a new king rose to power, he would basically kill everybody from the previous uh, dynasty, the previous administration, so uh, the probability of revolt would be very small. And so Jonathan said to David, hey, I know one day you'll be king when you are. I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't kill me, and I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't kill my entire family. And David says, I'm good with that. I'm going to do that. And, and uh, they go their separate ways. And the years that follows, uh, Saul and Jonathan, along with Saul's other two sons, are in battle with the Philistines. They're, they're all killed. The Philistines decapitate all four of them. They put their heads on top of the wall. And David soon becomes king throughout the land of Israel. And that's a brief backstory. Again, back to Samuel. Check Samuel 9. <clears throat> One day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive, anyone to whom I can show kindness to, for Jonathan's sake. He said, hey, I made a covenant. I made a promise with Jonathan. I'm going to keep it. So he summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am. Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Now, this young man who was crippled, his name is that great name, Mephibosheth, right? Mephibosheth. 
I'm going to call him the fifth, right, for the rest of the time here, because I'll probably say it 17 different ways, right? Someone keep talking. He's pronounced that name actually 39 different ways, right? And so, the fifth, all right? We're going to call him the fifth, okay? Have you ever known someone who just never seemed to be able to get a break in life? And maybe that's you, right? Maybe you're that someone. But that is the fifth, right? Uh, he could never catch a break. You see, he, he wasn't born crippled. But the day that his, his dad and his uncles and his grandfather died, he was back in the palace. And when word reached the palace that his father and everyone else had fallen, they were sure that pretty soon the enemy would come crashing through the doors and kill everybody. Uh, so he's five years old at the time, and the nurse taking care of him grabbed him to flee the palace, and she dropped him. And when she dropped him, he became permanently disabled. And listen, ever since that fall, he had been hiding away in fear of his life. Is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. He said, replied, yes. One of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. And I think when he says this, I'm not too keen on Ziba. I'll just let you know. I don't really like this guy. And I think when he says, yeah, there's one guy, but he's crippled. I think if you read between the lines, I think, yeah, there's one guy, but he's disabled. He's crippled. He's not really worth worrying about. I mean, if it were me, I would not even bother. And David's like, I didn't ask you about his physical condition. I want to know where he is. The king asked. And lo, Debar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Emil. Now, where is Mephibosheth? He is in a place called what? Lo, Debar. Lo means no, and the bar and the bar means pasture. In other words, he was in a place where there was no what? No pasture. There was it, it was a desolate wasteland. There was no vegetation anywhere. And that's where this disabled man has been spending his day since he was five years old. And by this time, he's probably in his mid-20s because he has a son of his own. I mean, so picture, try to imagine. This young man's life, he's living, or, or should I say, existing in low Debar, in a desolate, lonely wasteland, afraid, hiding, disabled. All because someone who should have been carrying him dropped him when he was young. And you know what? Tragically, that sort of thing happens too many times in our world today. I was having lunch with a fellow pastor today, and um, he's had a tragic story. He has two children. His daughter died three, like three years ago. His young daughter died, but right now he's fostering two brothers, six and seven. And he was saying, "What a rough time they're having right now with, with those two young brothers, you know, because someone who should have carried him when he was young and dropped him." So David sent for him and brought him from Bakir's home. And I'm sure at this point in his life, the last thing Mephibosheth wanted to hear was a knock on the door from a guy sent from the king. But that's exactly what happened. I mean, can, can you imagine what he's thinking when the door opened and there stood a group of soldiers who say to him, the king wants to see you. And kind of like 
Like what Ronald Reagan said years ago, the scariest words in the world to hear is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, right? All right? And, and the king wants to see you. And he's probably thinking, no, they finally found me. I'm done. I, I knew I should have took the battery out of my cell phone so they couldn't triangulate my position. It is done. It's over. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. Interestingly, you know what the, uh, the, the, the name Mephibosheth, it has two contrasting memes. Very interesting. Uh, one is shameful thing. The other is dispeller of shame. You see, Bible times people get the names that kind of co coincided with what was going on at the time. And can you imagine growing up with the name Mephibosheth? Hey, is that you, shameful thing? Teacher, second roll. Joe, Sally, here. Bill, are you here? Great. Dean, are you here? Great. Oh, oh, shameful thing. There you are. Good to see you here today, shameful thing. And when he came to David, he, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. I mean, this guy has to be scared to death. I mean, he's been hiding in the wilderness since kindergarten. And now he's standing before a mighty warrior, King David, a, a guy who killed a lion, a bear, and Goliath. Lions and Goliath and bears, oh my. Lions and Goliath and bears, oh my. That's a cheap one, right? I'm not well. Um, in fact, David killed thousands of men in battle. And that's the type of guy that this crippled man is battling before. He had to be freaking out. And even if you heard that David wanted to show him kindness, like it's very common in that day, like it was in ours, for leaders to say one thing and mean something else and do something totally different. Like King Herod, right? Remember him? What he said to the wise man, oh, when you find that cute little baby, you know, I got a bassinet that we're not using, and I would love to bring that cute bassinet to that little baby Jesus. Just let me know where he is. I want to worship him too. That's not what he wanted to do, right? He wanted to kill him. That, that's the way the kings operated. So it, it, it would be no surprise if he did that. So Mephibosheth had to think his life was in jeopardy. Verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said. Why do you think he said that? Because the guy was probably like shaking and in terror. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you'll eat here with me at the king's table. Now, that, that word kindness is the Hebrew word ased, often translated loving kindness. It's used 127 times in the Psalms, and it's translated many times there as steadfast love. And, and, and it speaks not to God's general love, but to God's covenantal love with his people. You see, hased is a love that never gives up, never gives out, and never gives in. Hased is an unquitting, unrelenting, unceasing kind of love. And the word kindness in Greek it is the Greek word Christos. And it means fit for use, useful, virtuous, good, manageable, mild, pleasant, benevolent, gracious. 
And, and here's one definition, one of the primary definitions I find interesting is it was used to describe wine that has been aged. In other words, wine that has mellowed to the point where the acidic edge has been softened. Wine that is no longer blunt and abrasive. Wine that is still wine, but wine that has been softened. Mr. Percet bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Like, like why, why would you do this for me? Who am I that I deserve such kindness? And you know what? I, I think David so gets where Mephibosheth was coming from. In fact, I think he would say, hey, I, I know where you're coming from. And you know what? I actually wrote a song about this very thing. You can, you can, you can um, upload, you can download it from Spotify or iTunes. It's Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him, human beings that you care for them? Yet when it came to feeling unworthy and undeserving of favor, David got it. Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. I'm kind of thinking Ziba to kind of take it over that. Yeah, that's just my, you know. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him, to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Do you see the life change and kindness brought into his life? From low to burn, no pasture, wasteland, having nothing to having everything that belonged to the previous king. And not only that, he gets to sit and eat at the king's Hey, I like how Chuck Swindoll describes it. He says, the meal's fixed, the dinner bell rings, and in comes David's children and guests. There's Amnon, witty and clever. There's Joab, one of David's soldiers, handsome and well-built, walking tall. Then comes Absalom, a handsome young man, not a blemish, from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. Then there's Tamar, the beautiful, tender daughter of David. Later, Solomon comes out of the library, studious, brilliant. In other words, all the beautiful people, the impressive people, the powerful people were at the table. And then they hear this. Clunk, clunk, clunk. Here comes Mephibosheth, hobbling down the long hallway. He humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's sons. And the tablecloth of grace of Loving kindness is said, it covers over his feet. I love it. I mean, the Bible mentions no words, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Are you kidding me? I mean, low to bar, that desolate, lonely place, is so far back in his rearview mirror. Okay, do you see why I chose this story to illustrate kindness? And now let's make some observations that we can pull out and apply to our life. And, and, and this, this is so, like, 
if you actually put in practice just some of what I'm about to say, it's going to change your homes, it's going to change your marriage, it's going to change your family, it's going to change where you work, it's going to change where you go to school, it's going to change where you go to church. It's going to begin to even change our world, right? And the power of God's loving kindness, he said. Uh, unleash kindness on your family and friends. And I intentionally chose this word, unleash, right? Uh, here, here, here are some definitions of unleash, right? To, to free from or as hit from a leash, let loose, because a strong force to be released or become unrestrained. <coughs> To let happen or to begin something powerful that once begun cannot be controlled. See, see the picture I want you to get, I, I, I forgot to bring it. Things popped in my eye. I'm working on my sermon if I get up here. And it's funny, man, I'm going to bring my dog leash with me. Guess what? I left it at home. Because you know, I get a leash, right? And the way I picture it is kindness is like on this leash, right? It, it, it wasn't meant to be on the leash. I mean, when I take my dog to an open field and I unhook her on a soccer field in Forest Lakes, my dog runs, right? Uncontrolled, unrestrained, and that's kindness. And I want us to unleash kindness and let kindness just run wherever God would want kindness to run. And he wants it to be unleashed on your family and your friends. Jonathan was named friend. You may be thinking, oh, Steve, you don't need to tell me I have to be kind to my own family. I get it. That's a given. But that's not always the case. If by giving me, we actually are doing it. I mean, my experience has been that a lot of times when it comes to kindness, it's that those who are closest to us get very little of our said, right? And we can so easily rationalize it, right? <clears throat> oh, they'll be okay. I mean, they know I love them, right? They, they know I care about them. They don't get over it. And for some of us, sometimes it's easier for us to show kindness to a complete stranger than to those who are closest to us. That's pretty messed up. Don't you think? And listen, to so at least kindness on your family and your friends, you can't just sit back and wait for an opportunity to present itself. You need to take initiative. You need to be proactive. I think we need to change our vocabulary from doing random acts of kindness to start, we need to do intentional acts of kindness to those closer to us. And maybe you know, we need to pray what David said in our text. Lord, is there anyone in my family? Are there any of my friends that I need to show kindness to for your sake? Is there anyone I have overlooked? Is there anyone I just tend to skip over? Is there anyone that, that, that I, I just kind of ignore? Is there anyone that I usually walk on the other side of the street just to avoid? See, in order to live out God's kind of kindness, you must start unleashing kindness on your family and friends. And do not think about how they can be kind to you, right? That's not why God brought you here. Could worry about what people are doing to you and start doing what God has commanded you to, all right? Amen? So easy, right? But they're not kind to me. They start being kind to me. They start throwing some kindness my way. Yeah, I'm good. But if they don't, no, stop that nonsense. You're a Jesus follower. We, we, don't, we don't play that game. There's so many things you can do, right? Like, go Google acts of kindness. I, 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 they're all over the place. There's so many I, I just grabbed this image off here, right? Right? 
Kind of get small tip strangers, leave a generous tip. By the way, if you're a Christian, you have to eat and you leave a tip. Stay home, right? Do, do not go to restaurants and leave a stinky tip. You know, that, that's, that's ridiculous. Over tip, even if the service is undeserved, right? Because he did a bad job, right? That's what God did for you, right? But, but there's tons of things. You're smart people. You got a smartphone, right? You, you, you can figure this out. What can you do? Maybe write a note to someone in your family, right? And the key is, oh yeah, you know what? I like, that's a good idea, Steve. I'm gonna pray about that and next next year, when 2020, when the apple drops in New York, I think I'll start doing it. No, start today. Start this week. What can you do to be kind to people in your family and your friends and show kindness? Next, we need to unleash kindness on someone who can't return the favor. I mean, really, what could a lame, crippled guy live in a low bar? <laughs> what did he have to offer a king? Not much from a human standpoint, right? And again, we said this time and time again, you know, that God has called us as people to be a people who looks out after the unfortunate, right? And those who need help, those who live on the edges of society. Jesus told a parable about it one time, right? It's his last parable, right? And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go visit you? The king replied, his very last parable, pretty significant. I'll tell you the truth. Where did you do for one of the least of these, my brothers of mine, he did for me? We unleash kindness, right? Because we live in a quid pro quo society, right? Yeah, we something for something, right? Okay, I want to do something for you, but it, am I going to get something back out of it, right? And, and that, that's we got to get nothing back. That, that, that right there is a picture. That's a picture of Macho, right? Coming up in a few weeks, many ways we have offered meals to bring in cereal bars and, and stuff like that. You can see Steve Bailey over there in the front row. Raise your hand, Steve. Just see, remember church. There's a way to get involved, right? You come sit and hang out with the guy, whatever, you know. You may not get anything back. Compassion Sunday, when people went to the nursing home and they prayed with people, painted fingernails of those elderly people who some don't ever get visitors, you know. And in human standpoint, they didn't get anything back, right? Our church got nothing back from that, but we got everything from that, right? <coughs> you unleash kindness from those who cannot pay you back. See, we're called to look out for those who are overlooked and forgotten, to those who were dropped when they were young. To those who are hiding in a desolate place because of shame. To those who have nothing to offer you back. To those that most of the world ignores, overlooks, and avoids. To tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of these, the least of these, my brother, you do for me. Mark Twain said this, kindness is a language that the deaf, deaf can hear and the blind can see. You want that leash in. Next, we want to unleash kindness when it may not be deserved. And you think about it, uh, the Pippachev's family wasn't really that kind to David, right? They're trying to kill him, force him to spend maybe 10 to 12 years hiding in caves and fighting battles and all kinds of difficulties. David suffered, right? Didn't do a whole lot of good things for him. But David 
And, and once Jonathan was dead, David could have said, you know what? Jonathan's dead, all bets off, right? Like the Godfather, right? Poor Freda, right? <laughs> once Freda's mom was done, it was done for poor Freda. Haven't seen the movie, right? And David says, no, I'm not going to do that. I made a promise. I'm going to keep that promise. Question, did you and I deserve the kindness of God? No. And see, when we express kindness when it's undeserved, we got to get ready because some serious unleashing of love could happen. Paul said this, if enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And I first heard that, I thought, that's pretty cool. Like, I don't like my enemy, and I get to fry their head? Yes. I mean, that's not really what he's talking about. And I said, I'm going to heap coals on his head. That's what I was talking about. I think it refers to this Egyptian ritual where a guilty person, as a son of repentance, carried a basin of burning coals on their head. What Paul's saying is, you know what? Your kindness could win them over. I remember this elderly woman at my first church, Betty Lombardo. Like, people were mean to her. She was always so nice. She goes, I'm just going to kill them with kindness. Right? I'm not going to let them get to me. I'm just going to kill them with kindness. And that's how kindness works, right? Um, Paul said, God's kindness is intended to lead you to what? Repentance. And Mephibosheth may not have deserved David's kindness, but he gave it. And so-and-so may not deserve your kindness. And I'm pretty sure that everyone in this room has a so-and-so. Like, who is last on your list for kindness, right? Who are throwing fire and you're by a fire singer, so you're like debating whether you want to put out the fire. And maybe you have someone like that. I'm going to ask you to raise. Maybe they're sitting right next to you right now. <laughs> and the question is, you know, will you and I, like David, will we show kindness? Will you and I, like God, will we show kindness even when it's undeserved? So God is calling us to begin unleashing kindness on our family and our friends, those who cannot return the favor, and those who may not deserve it. And I want to challenge you this week to do it. Do some random act of kindness, intentional act of kindness to your family and your friends. And what we're going to do is these blackboards, I'm going to have post-it notes next week. We're going to, going to say, love is kind. And you're going to write a post-it note. You don't put your name on it, but if you did something kind, you know, for your family or friends, don't, don't put your name on it, right? Or, or you, 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 did, you did kindness where it couldn't be paid back. But wouldn't it be cool to see this whole wall full of post-it notes where we're not just sitting in church talking about kindness, but we're going into our homes and our communities, right? And saying, hey, how can I show kindness? What can I do? You know, the people where I work with, where I live, how can I show kindness? And I'll tell you what, you fill that wall up. So the, the notes will be there, right? So there's no names on it. We're not trying to get glory for ourselves. We're trying to just motivate us and see the power of kindness. And there's there, there's a final point about kindness I, I, I want to talk about. And it's, as we wrap up, and it's kind of, it's a, it's a new thought to me. Um, God has called us to unleash kindness, not niceness. Um, not niceness. In my studies, I came across a really good book, and I read it. Uh, I, I read books sometimes. And, and uh, Love Kindness uh, by Mary Corey. He's the president of Biola uh, University. Uh, a very powerful book. And, and, and I want you guys, I'm going to read a quote. It's kind of long. It's going to pop up on the screen. But this, we live in a, would you agree that we live in a very mean, culture, <laughs> you know, and social media allows us to be mean from a distance, right, yeah. 
a blog, a, a comment on Facebook, right? And it's hard to be mean when you're face to face with person, people, right? You know, and, 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 and we live in a mean culture. And, and uh, uh, here's me. Here, to be Christian, kindness must shape us and define us. But this powerful virtue seems to be characterizing us less and not more. <laughs> We've lost understanding of the power of kindness, mistakenly dismissing it as fluff or flat. Kindness needs to be rediscovered. Our reflex is to fight those who oppose us, standing for our dignity in defense of the truths we hold. We have too often led with meanness toward those antagonistic to the Christian faith, to prove we're not going soft with our faith, or quick to label others from a distance. I wrote this book about frustration that those who represent the gospel are often caustic and mean, picking fights with those whose views are hostile to theirs. In other words, Christians are often starting with unkindness. Unkindness has little effect beyond marshalling other Christians to admire our toughness and raising our own profile. This has gotten us nowhere in the cause of the gospel. Our Christian call to be redemptive voices to that which is broken. Our increasingly shrill sounds in the public square are not strengthening our witness, but weakening it. Bullhorns and fish shaking, mustard armies, and using war waging rhetoric are far less effective than the way of kindness, treating those with whom we disagree with charity and civility. That doesn't mean we don't stand courageously for what we deem right, true, and just, but kindness is not incompatible with courage. Kindness, I said, embodies courage. Although courage does not always embody kindness. Too often our centers are firm on conviction, but our edges are also hard in our tactics. This way is characterized by aggression. On the other hand, there is a way of niceness. Whereas aggression has a firm center and hard edges, niceness has soft edges and a spongy center. Niceness may be pleasant, but it lacks conviction, has no soul. Niceness trims its sails to prevailing cultural winds and wanders aimlessly, standing for nothing and thereby falling for everything. Kindness is certainly not meanness, but it's also not niceness. Niceness is cosmetic, bland. Niceness is keeping an employee in the job, knowing he's no longer the right fit, but failing him and the company because you don't have the courage to do the kind thing. Kindness calls you to tell him he's not the person for the position and then dignify him in the transition. Kindness is fierce. Never be mistaken for niceness. They're not the same and never were. Kindness is neither timid nor frail, as niceness can be so easily. Kindness is all over the Bible, plentiful in both, both testaments, but you won't find niceness there once, or nice, for that matter. The ideals of kindness are rooted in Scripture, founded on Christian theology, Tested over the millennia by followers of Jesus. Since the early church, disciples have walked the risky and sometimes dangerous road of kindness. In today's polarized culture, we're often pulled toward one extreme or the other, soft center or hard edges. I'm proposing a different approach, a third way. Rather than the meanness of a firm center and hard edges, and rather than the weakness of spongy centers and soft edges, why don't we start with kindness? Kindness is the way of soft edges and firm centers. Amen. And come here. This see. Listen, Jesus was not nice. He was kind. 
It's kind of like C.S. Lewis. Remember Cars of Narnia? You know, Lucy S., you know, Mr. Beaver, about Aslan. Is he safe? Of course he's not safe. But it's good. It's good. See, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who comes from the Father full of grace and truth. You see, truth is having a firm center and grace is having soft edges so that people can approach us and people can, can talk to us. I mean, when the woman was caught in adultery, right? Jesus was not nice. He was kind. Now, he wasn't mean like the guys who drug her out. They were mean. But he wasn't nice and said, well, man, those guys are sure mean. Uh, you, you go about your day. You're okay. He didn't do that. What did he do? Go and sin no more. He, he, was, he was kind. He, 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 he spoke the truth. And, and, and what I've seen too many times in our lives as Christians, we go one extreme or the other, right? We're either mean or we're nice. Oh, they're not doing the right thing. They're not living the right way. I really wish they would. And we say nothing. We do nothing. Until we get so fed up, we jump all past kindness and we become like the meanest, right? We just blow up. And they're like, I don't understand it. I, I've been this boneheaded ever since you knew me, and you never said nothing to me, and now you're jumping down my throat, and I don't understand. See, see, we're to speak the truth in love. And we're to speak the truth in such a way that that, that people, that, that makes us more receivable, right? We need to have a firm center and soft edges, right? And we need to lead with grace and follow with truth, right? Lead with love and follow with truth. Lead with said and follow with truth. <clears throat> Niceness is hurting. Churches either are mean or everybody's going to hell. We hate you. We're glad you are. Or, hey, live any way you want. Everything's okay. That's nice. Jesus wasn't nice, and he's not called us to be nice. He's called us to be kind. Right? And when we, we talk to people in areas we disagree, we're kind. And we don't lose our convictions. We're kind. Hey, I disagree with you, but I love you anyway. I still love you. I still want to have coffee with you. But I, I don't agree with you. My convictions haven't changed, but I still can... Have a meal with you. It's time to unleash kindness. Right? Our family or friends, those who don't deserve it, those who, who can't pay us back. You know, it's time for us to figure out, you know, and definitely us in any leadership positions in the church, otherwise, and, and parents. Too many parents are too nice or too mean, and what their children need is kindness, right? In kindness. They need the truth and love. Amen? Amen. And as we close, I, I just want to mention, I, I didn't know if you noticed, but the gospel was right there in this entire story, right? Because guess who is Mephibosheth? We are. We are, right? You know, and, 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 you know he had these two contrasting names? Shameful thing and the speller of, of shame. And, and first, I, I, I want to talk to those in this room who are already sitting at the king's table. Right? Remember how you got here. You were, you were crippled. You were lame. Handicapped by sin. You brought nothing with you. You came from low to bar. And the only thing that got you at the table was God's loving kindness 
is a set, right? Remember how you got here. Remember how you stay here. You stay here by grace. And remember what to do while you're here at the table. Celebrate. Oh my goodness. You are sitting at the king's table. And also remember that God has called you to be a dispeller of shame. Right? To go out in this world and let all the Mephibosheths of this world know. All those in the world living in low debar. All those who were dropped when they were young. All those who have no hope. God want, all those who feel shameful about who they are. God wants us to go out and he wants us to dispel that shame. And help them to sit at the king's table. And maybe you're here today and, and, and you're Mephibosheth, but you're still in low debar. You've not surrendered to God yet. And, 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 and you're like, yeah, why would you be kind to a dead dog like me? You're not a dead dog. You're made in the image of God and you're loved by the God of the universe. And the God of the universe invites you to come to his table today. But if you've never done that, you've never surrendered your life to Christ faith and repentance and as we see in the New Testament of being baptized into the name of Christ and I invite you to do that uh, would you guys stand and pray with me uh, Father we thank you for your kindness God we thank you that when we were living in low debar when we had nothing to offer you when we were lame and crippled and handicapped by our sin at just the right time. You invited us to your table. And God, I, I pray that kindness. Oh God, this week, hundreds of acts of kindness could be unleashed in our community, in our homes, in our marriages. God, may we not just be hearers of your word do it. And see the power of kindness unleashed, unrestrained, uncontrolled, and do things that just blow our minds. And God, for those, if anyone's in this room who's, who's, who doesn't feel worthy of coming to your table, God, help them to know that you died and there's a place for them right now. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love and aside. I said, Lord, there's nothing like it. It's so scandalous when we think about it, but so beautiful too. In Jesus' name, amen.